Welcome to ESG Unlocked by ISS Corporate Solutions. I am your host, Pamela Mutumwa. On this episode, we focus on sustainability risks throughout the corporate value chain with two experts. You may have heard the term value chain reference in the business world and perhaps wondered how that differs from supply chain. We will uncover the differences clearly, as well as why it is vital for companies to develop strong and transparent relationships with the different value chain participants, such as their suppliers. Our guests are Ryan Hilder Weidecker and Frederick London. Ryan Hilder is Managing Director and Head of EMEA Solutions at ISS Corporate Solutions. In this role, Ryan Hilder builds and adapts solutions aligned with the sophisticated expectations set out in the fast evolving regulatory frameworks in EMEA. She has over 20 years of experience in the ESG space. She is based in Stockholm, Sweden and speaks German, Italian, Dutch and Swedish. Our other guest, Frederick, is the new ESG Initiatives product lead at ISS Corporate Solutions. He has over a decade of experience in sustainability, working with both corporate and financial institutions. He is based in Paris, France. Ryan Hilda and Frederick, welcome to ESG Unlocked. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Thank you, Pamela. Awesome. I understand that there is a difference between supply chain and value chain. So Frederick, let's start with you. Can you kick off this conversation by explaining the difference between the two for our listeners? Absolutely. And I think I think it's good that we sort of start off this conversation with a definition of term. What we're trying to do here is describe corporate activities, right? So when we talk about corporate activities, we talk about operations. We're generally talking about a pretty complex network of suppliers, employees, commodities, geographies, and many sort of human and natural interdependencies. And this encompasses so much more than just suppliers. And this is basically what we are trying to capture when we're using the term value chain, right? Because suppliers is really just sort of a subset, a very important subset, but it is at the same time a subset of a very complex network. I also think it's good to point out that the term value chain also. So when we're looking at these sort of reporting frameworks that that have existed for a very long time or that we're seeing coming into fruition in the the next couple of years, it's generally the value chain term that is being used. If we look at the greenhouse gas protocol, we have the scope three standard, which is something that a lot of people are talking about that is referred to as the value chain standard. If we look at the corporate sustainability reporting directive, that also refers to the value chain rather than the supply chain. That makes sense. So from a sustainability perspective, right, sustainability lens value chain is the appropriate term since it creates an opportunity to actually identify sustainable issues or risks. Yes, I, I would certainly agree with that statement. I think the, the term in itself has been around in business literature as well. So then value chain generally refers to how a company adds value to an end products via a bunch of operations and suppliers. So you're adding value, for example, for a to a piece of wood by turning it into a spoon so that you would have an added value to the customer. And then we've sort of taken this concept and expanded upon it. From a sustainability perspective, there are multiple definitions of value chains, but basically what they have in common is that they they cover the entire life cycle of either a product or a process. So we're talking about anything from design to manufacturing and then to the use of a particular product or service, and then it's end of life treatment. And I think Beyond the life cycle perspective, I think it's also important to think that the value chain concept is not tied to a specific entity. If we're thinking about sort of the relationship within this network we talked about earlier, 
in the supply chain, we're talking about the main corporate entity and then the supplier's relationship to that main corporate entity, mm -hmm. uh, these external collaborators. Whereas when we are talking about the value chain, we include everyone that's in any way involved or affected by a product or service. That it means, yes, suppliers. It means the company themselves, but it also means their clients and different types of external stakeholders. What I think is even maybe the most interesting thing about the value chain concept and also maybe the most important one is that we have a, a double materiality aspect here. So we are not just talking about how there's a risk to the business. We're looking at how the business is impacting society and nature overall. Great. Thank you for that explanation and example with the spoon. So when I was doing some research on this topic, I learned a little bit about the challenges that multinational corporations or MNCs have when managing their supply network as it pertains to corporate responsibility, right? For instance, MNCs are increasingly pledging to procure their materials and services that they need from companies committed to fair labor practices and environmental protections, but yet they often hold very little information about the sustainability risks and actual sustainability performance in the lower tiers of their supply chain which then exposes them to serious reputational, financial, and regulatory risks. Ryan Hilda, what are your observations when it comes to the challenges and the opportunities there are for MNCs? Yes, thank you, Pamela. That increased level of scrutiny that, that you referenced here is, is, is a really good starting point. If we look at a concrete example, and, and admittedly very few companies publicly disclose a comprehensive list of their suppliers, but where they are available, they provide some, some insights for us. Looking at, at one global clothing company, they disclose well over 1,000 tier one suppliers, manufacturing companies, and they, in their tier one suppliers, subcontract to over 1,000 processing factories. So these 2,000 plus factories combined are just really the top tier of that very complex upstream value chain of one single company without taking into account the supplies of raw materials. So you will appreciate the challenge really here is first and foremost, one of transparency. Yeah. Um, especially when it comes to those lower tiers that, that you referenced earlier. But it's at the same time critical. So I think this is really the first and, 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 and almost foundational uh, piece of work that, that companies have to carry out because this is critical for assessing sustainability risks with the aim then eventually, of course, to prevent, mitigate uh, human rights risk, labor rights risk, or harmful impacts to the environment. And some level of transparency into all tiers. So, so really also going down to the lower tiers is, is necessary to, to identify those risk hotspots when it comes to sectors or products or locations, because companies will need to target the action in a meaningful and, and, and impactful manner. To mention an example that dates back 10 years, the Rana Plaza tragedy of, of 2013 really demonstrated this. Many of the clothing companies at the time were, were challenged to confirm whether their products were manufactured in the workshops that were housed in the collapsed building. Some progress has been made since, not only in the textile industry, but at the same time, those hidden and invisible supply chains really remain a major concern in many industries. 
So that's that's really just a starting point, of course. Once once you have transparency, it, it's about building, uh, developing, and, and communicating expectations around human rights, working conditions, environmental performance, and ethical standards, and and, and monitoring performance against these these expectations. Absolutely. And what's interesting is some of the sustainability issues that MNC supply networks face is triggered even from them. There's an example I read about where in some instances, the company has such high demand that the suppliers, they end up overworking their staff, which, you know, beyond certain work limits, like 60 hours, which in that case, it's to meet the client's demand. That That is absolutely correct. And again, I think what we see now, and I hope we'll have some time to talk a little bit deeper about that, is the a confluence of, of regulatory requirements and standards around how these challenges can be approached, how reasonable standards can be, can be set for, for those suppliers. And again, it all comes ultimately back to that level of transparency that we need in order to identify the risks and address them. Yes. So right now, I'd like us to pivot into the various risk categories so we can actually dig a little deeper by topic. Let's start with the challenges we see with the natural disasters from extreme weather events such as hurricanes, tornadoes, heat waves, and tragically even wildfires. These are all events that are starting to be a part of leadership team concerns at companies due to the high degree of financial risks that are tied to the changes in weather patterns for their organizations. Recently, I read a study shared by the Harvard Business Review, and it revealed that most companies are actually ill-prepared for climate-related disruptions. Frederick, may you provide an example for what that can actually look like for a company? Yes, I think it's very safe to say when it comes to most sort of any type of sustainability related risk in the in the supply chain and in the value chain, companies are remarkably ill-prepared generally because they have no idea where they are operating or where their influences lie. So tying very much back to Runhill's massive list of suppliers. Mm-hmm. So yes, absolutely. Natural hazards. So climate change in itself, I think it's a very interesting topic from a value chain perspective. We're talking now a little bit about physical risks and natural hazards, but also, just greenhouse gas emissions in itself and understanding what your emission sources are is ch- turning out to be a very big challenge for a lot of companies. I mean, once again, scope three, top of mind of everyone. It's being mentioned constantly. Everyone's saying that it's difficult. And of course, it is. Before we jump to the specific example, I think we want to do an additional definition of terms. So when we talk about climate risks, we generally talk about transition risk and we talk about physical risk. So physical risk is fairly straightforward, and that's what you were talking about. We're talking about wildfires, we're talking about flooding, we're talking about tropical cyclone. From a supply or value chain perspective, here it's easier to sort of identify the entity we're we're analyzing. So I think we can look at a supplier here. You know, what we would do is say, okay, so we have a supplier that is active in a region that is exposed to increases in tropical cyclones as a result of climate change. So it's good to keep in mind that, yes, we are seeing that climate change is impacting natural hazards today, but we're very much adding a sort of temporal aspect here. We're talking about 10 years, 20, 30, 40, 50, and so on, years Uh in the future. What you sort of have to think about when you're putting together your supply chain. If we have a supplier that's active in a region that's exposed to increases in tropical cyclones, what we have to do, if we want to understand our risk exposure and limit it, Either make sure, one, our supplier, that we know who our supplier is, or we know who our supplier's supplier is. We know what the risk exposure is, 
and we know how they're dealing with this risk exposure. And if we have that information, then we can make an informed judgment about our relationship with that supplier. Should we say, yes, we trust this supplier? Should we say, no, we should probably get another supplier? Or should we say, yes, we are trusting this supplier, but we do also have a contingency plan in place in case something would happen. And that's something that you can do if you're tied to an individual manufacturer, for example. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what, how you would deal with those. If you're thinking about it from another perspective, commodity. So you are an industry that is exposed to a particular commodity like cacao, for example. So cacao is grown in a very specific climate. And if that climate changes, which is what we are seeing, then the availability of that particular commodity will change. And then if you want to do sort of a, a, a risk exposure analysis to that, you have to sort of first look at it from a business entity. So how are we going to adjust our production in relation to that shift in commodity availability? But it's not even something that you necessarily only have to do on a business level. This is something that you even have to do on a, on a wider sector level. Physical risk exposure here is absolutely huge. And as you can tell, incredibly complex. Mm -hmm. And in the end, Yes, it is an issue about data and modeling, but to even get anywhere, you have to first know where are you operating, where are your suppliers operating, and where are your supplier suppliers operating. And that's something that's proven to be extremely challenging. Can you give us an example of a scenario where, you know, perhaps a company was successful or unsuccessful and why? Yeah, and this ties very much into what we were talking about and the complexity of this. And I think very popular example in resilience is how Procter & Gamble acted or were prepared for Hurricane Katrina. So Hurricane Katrina, for those who don't know, was a massive hurricane that hit the southern parts of the United States in 2005, and most specifically the city of New Orleans. And as it happened at the time, and maybe still, Procter & Gamble had huge production facilities there. And the reason that they managed to deal with this disaster quite well is that they were extremely well prepared. Not only did they have contingency plans, and I believe they have a lot of those in place for their entire supply chain, which is quite interesting and impressive, but beyond just having that practical contingency plan in place, they had also planned for this when they were constructing these very important facilities. So they had looked at what is the flood risk in this particular area and how should we construct our factories to take that into consideration? What would the worst levels of wind speed be in this particular area? And how can we take that into consideration? And of course, by taking looking into those factors, they were prepared when disaster struck. Now, of course, listening to this, you will realize that, yes, maybe this is something that you can do if you own your operations, which is what Procter & Gamble did, but it's going to be extremely hard to do this type of analysis and application for your broader supply chain, tier one and below. Certainly a, a big challenge for corporates. That makes sense. It's already one challenge to handle your own systems and then another to rely on your suppliers to do the same. Let's explore the biodiversity impact, which focuses on operations or product dependencies on natural systems. According to the World Economic Forum, more than half of global economic output, which is about 44 trillion US dollars of economic value generation, is moderately or highly dependent on nature. What's pretty outstanding here is that just four big value chains, food, energy, infrastructure, and fashion, are responsible for more than 90% of man-made pressure on biodiversity. That's data I came across from a March 2021 report by Boston Consulting Group. 
And that same report also notes that the overall economic value provided by biodiversity is worth more than $150 trillion annually, which is about twice the world's GDP. So there is a direct tie to destroying natural capital with destroying business capital. Frederick, what are your observations in this biodiversity risk area? Yeah, I mean, it's it's very interesting. I mean, in the end, also, as we'll get to, I think it's, it's, it's very much data issue. I think also when we're putting these numbers on biodiversity, when we're talking about sort of an economic value of natural capital biodiversity, I would also like to say that it is all human outputs are highly dependent on, on biodiversity, right? So beyond costs that are associated with business disruption, it is very good to remember that the central part of this particular conversation is the biosphere and human beings that are all highly dependent on all other species. And when we are thinking about biodiversity, it's quite popular to talk about ecosystem services, for example. There are different, if you want to call them functionalities in nature that makes it easier or possible for humans to live. So we could talk about clean water, we could talk about clean air, we could Mm -hmm. talk about a stable climate, for example. These are all sort of systems that exist in nature that without it would be very, a lot more challenging, I would say, for humanity and business to exist. But yes, so biodiversity is a very hot topic right now, primarily because we're living through a what has been classified pretty much as a mass extinction, where we see species disappearing at an extremely high rate. This is something that has been established by the Inter- Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, the mass extinction primarily being the result or mainly being the result of changes in land and sea use, exploitation of natural resources, global heating, pollution, and the spread of invasive species. I think that the thing that sort of mainly brought it into the business conversation, and then also if we're thinking about it from a supply chain perspective, was the creation of the TNFD framework, the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures. That was established in 2021, and it's built around a similar foundation as at the TCFDs, that's the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. And the idea behind this framework is that companies and investors are going to start reporting on their biodiversity risks. So similar to how they are expected in some markets to be reporting on their their climate risks, it is a lot more challenging. And that's why getting back to the data question, because biodiversity is very much a data challenge that reaches even beyond that of climate change. In this particular case, corporates have a very limited understanding of their overall value chain. So how they are impacted by it and how they impact it. And in the case of biodiversity, you really need to have very specific localized assessments in order to properly understand your general risk exposure. ICS in general, through our norm-based research, we look at biodiversity. But what we're looking at there is how companies through their activities are disturbing natural habitats or maybe they are sourcing material from conservation spaces. And this is extremely interesting data. And that can tell you a lot about your suppliers and tells you about your value chain. It tells you about your risk exposure. But if you do want to have a granular understanding, you really need to do an asset level assessment. And of course, you don't want to have a reactive strategy. You don't necessarily want to start working on it when you hear that you've done something that might be bad for biodiversity. You want to understand your general risk exposure and then keep it low, so to speak. And unfortunately here, the tools that are available for these are pretty scarce. There is a lot more global engagement. We had COP15, so the Conference of the Parties that was focusing on biodiversity, that where we have an international conservation target of about 30%. 
but exactly how we're going to be reaching that goal, kind of the definitions of biodiversity, the tools that are going to be used to assessing that is not yet clear. Tying into the target conversation, yes, we are seeing more corporate targets on biodiversity, and that is fantastic. So that's interesting you say that companies are basically setting targets, but they don't necessarily know how they'll be able to reach them with confidence, at least. Yes, and that is true. But I would also say that that is fine. If the ambition is there and if the activity is there, I think it is a perfectly fine first step to do that. That's good to hear. Let's move on to another topic that I think is pretty interesting. First, I'd like to take the time to clearly define what this risk is. And from the perspective that we're going to be looking at it, it would be modern slavery. So Ryan Hilda, what is the definition of modern slavery? That is indeed one of the key, if not the key topic in the social space on the social pillar. Modern slavery is really an umbrella term, and it refers to both all forms of modern day forced labor, including human trafficking that results in forced labor, but also forced marriage. When it comes to forced labor specifically, I think it's really important to know that it can occur in all types of works and services, all industries literally all geographies, but it's really also important to emphasize the difference between forced labor on the one hand and sort of substandard or unfair working condition on the other. So the difference really lies, and that's according to definitions by the most authoritative bodies in the field, the International Labor Organization, ILO, the difference really here lies between forced labor on the one hand, where we have the presence of threat, coercion, abuse, deception, and especially involuntary work. So very extreme forms of exploitation. Penalties or threat of penalty can involve both sanctions, physical violence, again, all forms of threat, typically also withholding of wages, withholding of identity documents. And again, the worker is not free to leave, has not given consent to that type of, of work or service. Modern slavery being at one end of the spectrum, and I think many expert organizations have emphasized that it is very important to to really look at those and pay attention to those substandard working conditions as they kind of create the the ground for, or could create the ground for situations of forced slavery and modern slavery. Absolutely. Now, I'd like us to bring to light how widespread modern slavery is and which types of businesses run the highest risk of involvement in it. I know you clarified that it can be seen in all industries, but I'm sure there are some types of businesses that run a higher risk of being exposed to this risk. You're you're absolutely right. There are certain industries, certain geographies, and oftentimes combination of industries and geographies, or even more granular product level, that have been found to be more at risk. Um, but let's look first at the, the high-level numbers, and they, they're really staggering. The ILO, so the International Labour Organization, International Organization for Migration, and an Australian based, Australia-based but global. Human Rights Organization Walk Free, they very recently released a report with fresh statistics that put the number as high as 50 million people globally uh, living in modern slavery in, in, in 2021. Of those 50 million, 28 million in forced labor conditions, and of those 28 million, 
about two thirds thereof in forced labor in the in the private sector. I think another aspect that is worth emphasizing here that that has been pointed out in the report is, and in similar reports by other organizations, by the way, that migrant workers have been found to be particularly vulnerable to these types of working conditions and extreme forms of exploitation. That is something that businesses will have to pay particularly close attention to as migrant workers have been found to be more than three times more likely to be victims of forced labor conditions than non-migrant adult workers. And oftentimes that's closer to our homes than, than we want to believe. I learned that ISS's norm-based research team that Frederick had mentioned earlier is actually monitoring allegations of modern slavery linked to 270 companies globally. What are the most exposed industries out of the 270 being monitored? Yeah, indeed. So ISSCSG does carry out a very comprehensive monitoring of controversies, so any form of grievances, complaints, allegations of negative impact on people or the environment raised by different media sources, also authoritative intergovernmental organizations or governmental organizations. And indeed, as you mentioned, the ISSCSG is currently monitoring over 300 allegations that are linked directly to modern slavery. So that's a very high number. The sectors that are most exposed to these types of allegations are consumer durables and apparel, technology hardware, food beverages and and tobacco. So those are definitely the top sectors, to some extent also retail and and, and capital goods. And maybe interesting also here, again, as, as we spoke earlier, right, it comes often down to the combination of industry and, and, and country or even particular territories within a country. So in this case, nearly half of the currently identified controversies linked to modern slavery relate to state-sponsored forced labor in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region in, in, in China. So that's, that's, of course, a very, very high number. That is a very high number for one specific region to be affiliated with most of these controversies. Now, I'd like to round up our conversation by discussing the progress and activities in the regulatory and legislative landscape that support sustainability in global value chains. Reinhold, you can kick us off with your thoughts on this. What are your observations when we look at the activities in this space? There is so much going on in this space. <laughs> so that is, that is both exciting and frightening, but I think more than anything, exciting. Yeah. And it gives us hope that there will be a greater level of harmonization and, of course, eventually also improved performance across the board. So you see that these disclosure regulations typically hold companies accountable. But what is the end goal or impact that we can expect in practice in the real world as, we, as a result of these initiatives? I mean, many of these initiatives have focused on and are focusing on disclosure. So it's it's sort of stringent disclosure requirements that are set out in different regulations. Uh, but ultimately sort of disclosure towards accountability. And when we look at disclosure, it's also quite interesting to see ISIS ESG data on very granular issues around supply chain management, among others, just looking at whether 
whether companies disclose the existence of a supply sustainability risk assessment. And data currently shows that 70% of Australian companies and over 50% of European companies disclose the existence of such risk assessment, which, as we discussed earlier, is really the, the very, very starting point of such supply chain management compared to much lower levels in, in North America or in Asia. I think we see that that regulation here is a driver. But ultimately, we go back to the point I made earlier about accountability. It's regulation is expected to help investors and consumers to make more informed decisions. It's also meant to incentivize companies to, to compete against each other in the sustainability field. Really, really important. Yes, and that competitiveness will certainly help raise standards over time. I think this is the perfect moment for us to close out the episode. So I'd like to summarize some of the main takeaways for our listeners. We learned that value chain risks are complex to assess and differ from issue to issue. Biodiversity, modern slavery, human rights, and climate risks all require different approaches, analysis, and data sets. It's therefore vital to develop strong and transparent relationships with the different value chain participants, like one suppliers. And in order for companies to understand their risk exposure, they need to map out their geographical and physical footprint. Companies need to have a thorough understanding of where they operate, where their suppliers operate, and even where their suppliers' suppliers operate. And this information is vital for companies to make informed strategic decisions. Finally, the acceleration in regulatory demands and corporate responses will likely lead to increases in transparency and data quality. And we can expect companies' understanding of value chain risks to improve substantially in the coming years. Ryan Hilder and Frederick, thank you both so much for contributing to the ESG Unlocked community. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much, Pamela, for having us. This was ESG Unlocked, brought to you by ISS Corporate Solutions. And as your host, I appreciate you listening in and encourage you to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues, as our mission is to help you better understand the ESG landscape. And please subscribe to get an alert for new episodes and follow ISS Corporate Solutions on LinkedIn for webinars and insightful thought leadership pieces as we continue to explore and unlock the value of ESG.